Hi, this is Tony Tolado, and this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. This is the first of my Deadly Space, really, mini-marathon, where I feature a look at two movies. First is Icarus Down, as a spacecraft en route with an escorted mysterious passenger called Draenor, who is carrying a case of unknown contents, is shot down on an unknown planet. But that's just the beginning of the adventure, and more on this in a moment. All hell breaks loose when Icarus is shot down and forced to crash on an unknown planet. Captain Althena Torla faces the destruction of the Icarus, the death of her husband, the fatally wounding of her Lieutenant Orin, and the danger Draenor possesses. Thus unfolds a poignant, riveting story about survival, space, and love. So on this edition of Sci-Fi Talk, I speak to the actor who plays Captain Torla, Teddy Nicoletos, and her director, Paul Nicoletos. Let's go to the conversation. First of all, uh, you know, the, the project is Icarus Down. And if you can both talk about, you know, going through, I mean, it used to be that financing a film, uh, it was never even imagined it would go through this kind of step. And yet, it's actually, for a lot of indie films, it's actually becoming almost commonplace. Kind of talk about that end of it and, and, and going through Indiegogo to finance your film. Having a lot of people that are in the industry, they tend to want to help out other people. Not always, but, you know, usually it's for the greater good of, you know, being filmmakers. Indiegogo has placed that, like, like Kickstarter or other crowdfunding uh, sources, have given us an access that we would not ordinarily have. And it makes it seem almost like we don't have to go and beg and ask people for favors or for money. We do give something in return, but we also lay all the cards out on the table. And mm-hmm. we say, listen, this is what we're doing. So you ha- And you can be a part of it. It also gives a glimpse to the people of, uh, you know, the filmmaking process and how they can help and how they can be part of it. As opposed to just saying, oh, I'm going to be taking your money, I'm going to make it a film, and then eventually you'll just see it when it's complete. Right. You know? right. It gives them a glimpse, and then, you know, you just... Uh, it makes them feel involved and be a part of it. It does. It has made it easier. They're not always successful, of course, these crowdfunding uh, campaigns. But if they do tend to be successful, yeah, hopefully you can finish a film and you know people. You can be thankful to people. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I I completely agree with Paul. I believe, especially with the sci-fi community, there's a lot yeah. of people who'd like to uh, contribute into sci-fi projects. Mm-hmm. And they would like to see the short film be turned into a feature eventually. So they like to feel like they're part of the whole industry. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, uh, you know, doing it this way. I think it's an exciting time for filmmakers. I think a lot of projects are being being made now that would have never been made, and I, I think that's uh, I think that's awesome to kind of talk about the story a little bit. Um, it's um, one of the films I was fond of when I was a kid was Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and which was basically a survival film and also about kind of, uh, you know, getting along with uh, different races and things. Is is this uh, kind of in the survival vein a little bit? And if you can both uh, speak to that as well, please. Yeah, uh, definitely in the survival vein. Um, it's very interesting because apart from, you know, being able to contain a giant story in 10 minutes time, trying to incorporate a little bit of action, a little bit of drama, the character development, it tends to be a little bit harder because you don't have the two hours span right. 
mm-hmm. to to create this uh, this world. So you have mm-hmm. to do it as quickly as possible and engage the audience as quickly as possible. It does have the survival aspect as one of the fundamental cores of this actual story. But there's also a little bit of love in there. Mm. You know, we try to stick in a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of love as well, and a little bit of the tension of the, of the fear of maybe the unknown and also this particular character who who is not you know Draenor, who is not part of the crew. Right. You know, and also you have the, the survival instincts kick in because she, the main character, is the captain. But you also crash land in an alien planet. Mm-hmm. So whatever story comes after the short film, it is all about survival. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it's not only about the survival of one person. It's trying to to save the lives of the whole crew. And not only that, there's a key element in the story that depicts the survival of humanity. Great. And Teddy, tell us about uh, the captain, Alpina Torla. And uh, is, uh, is she a kind of person who would make a Ripley of Aliens fame uh, proud? Yes. Um, <laughs> Ripley is actually one of my idols. Oh, cool. What we wanted to do with Valpina is that we didn't depict her as as a typical woman in sci-fi. Mm-hmm. We didn't uh, try to point out that she's actually a female. She's just a captain, a person. She's strong. She follows her duties. Uh, her main objective is her crew, her ship. We didn't try to make her uh, eye candy or the love interest of somebody. She is the lead character. When you got together uh, to kind of go over her, what what you wanted to do with her, uh, was it mm-hmm. was it collaborative and both of you kind of giving your ideas back and forth as to how to portray her and how to and, and what she was to the core? Well, you know, for me as a, as a director, I tend to not interfere with an actor's character development process unless, of course, they go on such an extreme tangent where I say, you know what, that doesn't look anything like what I imagined. And I don't think it's working, but right. that usually doesn't tend to be the case. When you when you work with good actors, they can interpret a character and make them their own. I prefer that a lot more than me saying, "Oh, I want you to play the character this way or be influenced by these other characters," because then it's almost it almost feels that like it's it's a copy of these existing characters. Sure, every other film you know borrows and takes from other films and other characters, but if I allow the, the actor to be as creative as possible, then something you know. I don't want to sound too corny, but truly magical can happen. Yeah. And you can create a unique character that could fit in the ranks of, you know, Ellen Ripley mm-hmm. or, you know, even Jean Grey or other kind of characters in the sci-fi world that are, you know, unique in their own way in their own portrayal. Mm-hmm. And I think with this particular character, we achieve something like that as well. A lot of the times the actor's personality will seep through the character, but I think that's where the, the perfect integration of, of the human person and the character kind of blend together. Mm, cool, and it and, and both of you <clears throat> talk about your sets. I mean, the uh, the spaceship itself and the design and kind of where did you went from that? And from Teddy's perspective, what was it like? It looked like it was pretty cramped quarters from looking at the stills on the site. It was pretty confined spaces, but actually using a set that was a spaceship really puts you in the moment, and it really brings everything into a reality. Even though some parts were green screen, green screen. Everything was really there. Everything, the crash was actually happening. You know, uh, Paul, if you could talk about uh, the design of the uh, of the spaceship. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story. The, uh, I'll tell you a little bit of how I came up with the idea. Uh, I was, for a previous project of mine, we went out looking for different locations for green screen. And we happened to come across this place, Laurel Canyon Stages, that has a standing spaceship set what? since the 70s. 
Wow. So I, as I was looking at it, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to do a story involving this set? Because you don't have to build it. It's already there. Wow. So that's when I started thinking about what kind of story could I make that would involve this set, make it look different than all the other productions that have used it, but also maximize and create a production value that is not usually, you know, associated with uh, with low-budget uh, short films. And that's what we did. So then I created the story of a spaceship crash. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a cockpit, but obviously it's, it's kind of outdated, so we had to make it look a little bit more modern, or I guess futuristic, not even modern, more futuristic, by adding the screens and obviously the green screen in the back to see the world. So my approach to it was avoiding using as many visual effects as possible, because that's really what tallies up the budget. Yeah. So what we do is we just use one minute and a half of film that uses all the visual effects, the green screen, the, the ship kind of crashing down. So we engage the audience in the first minute with the ship already entering an atmosphere of this alien planet and about to crash. Then the rest of the film is all post-crash. Mm. And what this, this set allowed us, you know, the freedom of shooting in a real environment, creating a reality for the, for the actors so they don't have to imagine that they're in a, in a, in a broken down spaceship. They're really there. Right. Right. And I think that really adds to, to the, uh, the reactions mm-hmm. of the reality of the situation. Cool. And what did you, where did you find the location for the planet itself? Well, that's the, the, the trick. We only open the doors of the spaceship at the end, and we get a glimpse of what the alien planet looks like. Oh, okay. But we don't really see it. Oh. We leave that up to the audience's imagination. Oh, interesting. So yeah, The whole film takes place in the ship as the, the crew or the, the survivors try to get out of this uh, damaged spaceship before it collapses. Oh, wow. Interesting. That's what they used to call on Star Trek a bottle show <laughs> in the old days. But that's cool. Exactly. I think that certainly, uh, because of the confining spaces, I'm sure that creates a lot of drama there, too. Oh, yeah, a lot of the tension. And, you know, the situations themselves make, uh, make the drama, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Back on Sci-Fi Talk, I'm Tony Tolado. Because we don't know everything about this alien. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, gray area when it involves uh, with him. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, they don't know anything about it. They they crash landed here in an uncharted alien planet on their trajectory to this planet that we call Epsilon 13. So the main objective was for Alphania to transport this uh, passenger drainer from Earth to Epsilon 13. Halfway there, someone finds out the location of this case. They shoot him down. They crash into this alien planet. And that's where chaos ensues. And what about the makeup for Draenor? What was, uh, where did you, how did you, is he humanoid or is he alien looking? Uh, well, he is a humanoid. Oh, okay. But the question is always there whether he's an android or not. Oh, okay. And we give a little bit of a hint with a bit of a tattoo that he has on his cheek that is kind of binary code. And then people can think, oh, you know, and also with his demeanor, the way he portrays the character. People, we don't specifically say if he's an android or not. That's mm-hmm. to the audience to decide. Yeah. Drainer represents actually a sense of logic because mm-hmm. as soon as chaos happens, um, after the crash, chaos occurs. But Drainer is always logical one. And Teddy, can we talk about the arc that she has uh, during the course of the film? It sounds like uh, she's got a lot on her plate in this movie. Well, simply put, uh, this is her ship and her crew. And she starts out, her main objective is to save the ship. When that doesn't happen, when the ship gets destroyed, her next objective is to guarantee the safety of the crew. She is willing to sacrifice herself for the crew's survival. 
And now Draenor is a threat to everything that she holds loyalty to. And she rejects his idea. She rejects his sense of logic. Until the very end, where she ultimately snaps back into her captain coherence mode and tries to venture off alone. Wow, that's interesting. And as far as uh, when you're asking people to, uh, you know, to give their money, it's uh, it's mm-hmm. primarily for the special effects and the sound. Uh, now, do you have um, a special effects house kind of, uh, you know, doing some research as to who it might be, as to who might come in and, and work on your effects once you get the funds? Yeah, we have uh, the visual effects. The post-production house is ready to go. They've done a lot of research, extensive research as to what the ship looks like, what the planet might look like. And we also have the sound designer and the composer ready to go. Oh, cool. They're just waiting. Wow. Everybody's on board. They love the project. They love sci-fi. And I think working with people especially that love sci-fi, they tend to work more for the project as opposed to just somebody who's doing it as a job. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I think if they love sci-fi, they get even more creative and thus making a better project because then I don't have to be there micromanaging and saying, oh, you know, put this sound here, put this on there. I don't really know that much about sound. I know what sounds good and what doesn't. But if you get a good sound designer who loves sci-fi, then they can create these unique sounds that will really add a new dimension to the film altogether. Same with music and especially with the visual effects. And the nice thing is that there's like a lot of these great projects. They have a lot of different levels where people can contribute. And I like the fact that you picked the planets as the, the kind of levels. I thought that's pretty neat. So that's cool. The beauty about sci-fi films is that it create, it gives artists the creative freedom to do whatever they want because they're creating a world, whether it be with sound or even visual effects. They're creating something that doesn't exist. And that's, I think, true creative freedom. And also gives you an opportunity to maybe say things in this context that if you did it as a straight dramatic film, it might not work as well. It gives you an, mm-hmm. a platform that you normally wouldn't have, and you certainly both can can speak to that. Um, sci-fi gives you that um, that almost carte blanche to do anything that could be taboo, but because it's in a fictionalized world somewhere in a distant future with possibly aliens, it, it's it's more acceptable. It's more allowed, if you will. I agree. The thing is that if you would take this story and just place it in a regular in Earth and put it anywhere, it wouldn't be as compelling as if it was in space because everything is unknown there. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's definitely uh, it's definitely its its own thing. And uh, kind of speak to you've gotten some contributions already, and you're actually off to a pretty decent start. Uh, that's not that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, we just actually finished up a, a little uh, promo video with me, uh, you know, kind of discussing the film and discussing what, you know, the uh, the visual effects are for and all that stuff, which will probably up to upload later today. Okay. I think that will actually help more um, get the people familiar with what we're trying to do and kind of relate to the project a little bit more and hopefully then get the ball rolling a little bit faster. And you also post updates on the site as well, and and there's a gallery so people can kind of see, uh, you know, what 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 the film looks like, and I guess they were production stills that you took, uh, you know, during the course of the film. Yeah, yeah, and, and updates will have to, you know, be updating it every couple of days. If people want to have any questions, of course, we try to engage as much uh, the people in the community of sci-fi as we can. Because it is a big community, and they all help each other. So we want to keep them involved and 
makes him feel a big part of it. And, and actually, um, if you guys can, uh, can, can talk about, um, you know, the, the name Icarus, does it have any significance as to why you chose that name? Well, the first name I actually chose was Achilles. Ah. My dog's name. <laughs> I <laughs> named the ship that. But then, as I looked at going as a guy, I don't know if it fits worse. Plus, Icarus, I found this really cool logo on the internet. Well, Icarus is just a statue. It's the actual, I modified it to make the logo of the film with the wings. And it's a bit symbolic of Icarus flying too close to the sun and crashing down the, the Greek historical myth. Plus, I'm Greek and I wanted to find something new into the story. And I think that's, there's really nothing much more into it. Oh. It, it certainly sounds like a, an interesting film. I certainly would like to see. I'm a big supporter of indie films anyway, and I'd like to, you know, when people are kind of putting a lot into it, and it looks like you have already. Um, so it's just to let people know the film is all shot. It's just really the effects that you need to do. Yeah, it's all the post production. So the film is shot in a matter of three days. Wow, it's a, a lot, lot of work. work. But, uh, but yeah, but it was proper planning. And, you know, prep days and everything, we were able to, you know, work as efficiently as possible. But, you know, when you do costumes and you have sets and set designing and changing the set to make it look like a different room, that takes time. Sure. I know they did that on Star Trek many times. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's what you have to work with and, and, and certainly uh, that. I mean, do you both feel that um, as far as a budget for films... Sometimes if you get, I mean, be, I, I certainly hope you will meet your quote and go over it, but sometimes if you feel like you get almost too much money, um, you you actually, you know, you don't do as a good a job at times when you have less because, uh, is your, because you're keeping everything compact. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's, it's a double-edged sword. Really. Sometimes when you get too much, you tend to get greedy and say, well, what can I get away with? What more can I do to make this better? When in reality, you don't really have to do anything because what you did with your limited resources was already great. You're just going and, and trying to be extra, you know, frivolous unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you have less money, that's when real creativity comes out because you have to work with what you have. And, and Teddy, as an actor, did you get a lot of time to prepare for the role? Uh, was there any kind of read-through or anything like that with the rest of the cast? Yes, we did a couple of rehearsals with the rest of the cast, and the director, Paul, gave us notes, and he told us uh, what his actual vision was, so we communicated a lot back and forth. But ultimately, I'd say we only had about two weeks to actually fully prepare for the role, because we did a lot of rewrites and as we went. Well, again, it sounds uh, interest. It sounds like a, a worthwhile project, and certainly urge everybody will have the website on my website in addition to the notes of the podcast so people can can actually click on it and visit and also contribute. So I certainly wish the best of luck. Um, as uh, just let's say you you know we're being hopeful you meet the target. When uh, how long do you expect the post production process to take? Well it shouldn't really take long because uh, as, as I mentioned the uh, the artists are ready to go and they've done research. So I realistically think that by beginning of September, the film will be 100% complete. Wow, that's great. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be really And it'll be ready to be submitted to festivals, and this will actually serve as a concept for us to pitch as a feature. Oh, cool. So that's the goal, is to do the film festival route? Yeah, at first, yes. And then, you know, eventually, once we get some more momentum at the festivals, 
hopefully start pitching the idea for a future film, which is what it really is all about, right? What about like maybe showing it uh, like on you know for on demand services that kind of thing initially as well? Is that something you thought about? Yeah, yeah, we thought about like uh, on Direct TV. There's uh, that Shorts channel. That's one of the avenues as well. Or even I believe uh, iTunes. Mm-hmm. Every avenue must and will be explored. Yeah, I think nowadays you have to. <laughs> you know, that oh, yeah. you have to get it out there as, as in any way possible. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for chatting with me today. I certainly, again, wish you the best of luck, and I, I, I certainly would uh, love to see this when it's finished. Yeah, thank you very much, Tony. Oh, thank you. It, it was and, nice talking to you. And, and Teddy, keep those tweets coming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely real. Thank you very much, huh? Thank you. All right, you guys take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You can watch Icarus Down on Apple TV+. Sounds interesting. This is Tony Tolado.